0: Okay, today's episode features Shoaib Makani, the CEO of Motive, and my fellow partner at Kleiner Perkins, Ilya Fushman, who sits on their board and recently led their last round. I didn't introduce either of them before we got started or when we got started. So just so you know whose voice is whose, I start off by asking Shoaib to talk about conversations at the dinner table. Ilya jumps in a few minutes later when we're talking about homework. Okay, that's it. Here's the show.
1: There was definitely existential moments where we were running out of money, had to make hard decisions, extend runway and had some real doubt without question was this the right play was this the right move is this the right thing i could be doing but it's impossible not to have doubts if you don't have doubt if you're not really criticizing your own thinking and critiquing your worldview you're almost certainly not going to actually build a great company
0: hi i'm jubin operating partner at kleiner perkins and i'm excited that you're tuning into grit the goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are Rather, a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I generally like to start these things off with just trying to get a better sense of like you growing up. What was conversation like for you at the dinner table? I'd say it was... um
1: Immigrant family, parents moved from Pakistan to middle of nowhere, Texas and about 1985, I was two years old, and it was a very accomplishment focused culture. My my dad was intense and I'd say had high standards. Uh, A lot of the conversation at the dinner table was, what are you learning? And then actually being able to kind of teach it back to him in a way. In some ways my parents were like getting the American experience through their kids, And so, yeah, I remember often we'd actually have to write essays and book reports around the things we were learning. My dad was demanding in that way, and, and my mom was like the opposite. She was super zen. She was super low anxiety, gave us air cover. And so it was an interesting balance of intensity with incredible.
0: Sorry, so you go to school, you do your homework, then you write a report on your homework for your parents? Yeah, my dad would have us write the summary of what we learned, whether it was,
1: you know, science, math. My mom was actually the one oftentimes teaching us math because the public schools in Texas weren't the best at that time. But yeah, it was I'd have to, like, take what I learned and really demonstrate that I had understood it, not just, you know, memorized it. Do you have kids now? I just had a kid. You just Uh, had a kid. I should say just six months ago. Do you want to be like that? I think there's lessons in that that I will pass on a curiosity for learning and a curiosity for the world around you in comprehension. I think the idea of like actually understanding what's happening around you rather than just being able to repeat it is important. Um, now the format may change. Uh, yeah. I'd say uh, I don't think it'll be book reports or if it is,
0: she'll be using chat GPT. Yeah, um, that's right. The world changed, but I, I think there's still something I'll carry forward there. I had that. My mom would say, just go study. And I'd put a textbook on my lap and then I put my game boy behind my textbook and I'd be like, yeah, I'm just studying. I'm sure you had that too.
2: Um. Not quite. I definitely had to study. My parents had pretty high expectations. They're both scientists. Didn't quite have the book report, but definitely um, had to demonstrate accomplishment in school. And uh, yeah, my mom is actually really helpful with a lot of my homework. A lot of credit goes to her. Yeah. Uh, and when, whenever I missed school because I slept in, she'd write me a nice note. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's amazing. Like these days, you got like kids have Kumon and like Russian math and like at that. At that point, it was just my mom
0: teaching me. You know, the, the, the compliment, she was my tutor. She was like, complimented the public education. Do you feel like that type of experience shapes your mental model of the way that you see things today? Yes, definitely. We're, we're all a product of our experiences. And, and I, I think what I,
1: the, the model that I was trained on was work hard and persist through challenge. And importantly, don't take your circumstances as the limit of what's possible, right? Continuously learn and then change your circumstance and go and find uh, new opportunities. And I I think my my parents exemplified that. I mean, leaving Pakistan, not for something better. I mean, it's not like they were coming here for a better job. They were coming here to give us a shot um, and willing to take risks to do so. And so that kind of risk tolerance with pursuit of growth is something that I absolutely
0: have learned and carry forward. Question for both of you, I'll start with you. If you could describe to an alien what company building is, how would you describe it?
2: That's an interesting question. Or like your daughter. My daughter? Yeah, I'd say it's getting a bunch of people together and um, motivating them to build something that's never existed before. Something truly new. And really inspiring them, leading them, and making it possible for them to actually do that. But it's really kind of the corralling of people to align and, and build something really incredible.
1: Absolutely agreed and aligned with that. I think it starts with having a belief that there is a better way to do something and not a marginally better way. It has to be a fundamentally and transformative experience, jaw-dropping relative to what came before it or the absence of it. And so I think I always look at it through the threshold of how is what you are doing fundamentally better than what exists today? And assuming that that's the case, well, then it's Convincing others that your unique insight and your view of the world is the truth, maybe not the truth now, but will soon become the truth you want you want to be you know, as I say contrarian and right and so I think that seed of an idea then has to be executed ruthlessly and it takes you know individual leadership but then massive collective execution
0: that's oftentimes the hard part is compelling other people to follow you. Was there a first time that you saw that like in your own experience before? starting motive? Was there a first time where someone compelled you to see a vision of the future that you didn't see existed before? Like this was your early days of watching a startup movement kind of grow. Do you remember that point where maybe it started to dawn on you? Well, before I started
1: the company, I was in venture. And I almost like think about venture capital as reinforcement learning for entrepreneurs. Like you get to see a whole bunch of both successes and failures. And you get to start to build a point of view on what a compelling opportunity looks like. What's a big market? What's a revolutionary product? What does it take to build a great team? And then it allows you to then apply it, you know, hopefully with high fidelity when you go out and do your own thing. I'd say the closest that I observed in my time adventure that of that was probably Instacart. It was coming out of YC. Uh, and I remember meeting Apurva and just immediately recognizing that it, most fundamentally, like there was so many things broken, but like most fundamentally, they, he had built a transformative customer experience. And it wasn't, you know, 20, 30% better, it was 100X better than the alternative. And so that appreciation for it, you have to have a great technology or product experience that's transformative really stuck with me. And then once you're past that threshold, it becomes an absolute execution machine.
0: Like once you realize what great looks
1: like, that's the bar. Yeah, yeah. High standards are are infectious. And when you see a lot of other people building great companies, you get to kind of elevate your own standard.
2: Do you remember? I wound up doing a startup right after my PhD. I think a lot of it just has to do with, you know, when you think about the problem in an abstract way, it feels insurmountable. Right? How did these companies get built? If you look at Motive today, it's a massive company. It's got a bunch of products. It's got thousands of people, and it feels like it's just impossible to do that from the outside. But once you see it from the early stages, you kind of understand that hey, it takes you know a, f- a few small steps. It's like you know you dip your toe in the water, then you w- w- wade in ankle deep, then knee deep, then then you're in there and you're swimming and you're like swimming you know one stroke at a time and you're kind of on your way. And you might swim from Alcatraz to the city or whatever distance you're swimming that feels really long. But seeing it executed and seeing people do it in the right ways and great ways is probably the best learning experience you have. But it's that, like, you just have to jump in and do it, and it's possible. Getting over that hump, I think, is the biggest sort of hurdle, actually, to cross. Yeah.
0: Sorry, you said high standards are infectious. Can you revisit that? What do you mean?
1: Yeah. It's rare when someone, without having, let's call it, been in a, uh, observed directly, excellence, Or been at least exposed to it in some form, can just kind of spontaneously adopt it, like conceive it and then set a standard that's really high. We are mimetic creatures. We see something and then we generally emulate. And I think this is where it is possible to actually learn high standards, it is teachable there's micro applications of it being incredibly obsessed with the detail when you're working on a part of the product. Maybe it's a narrow feature that few are going to see, but like when you set a very high standard and have incredible high threshold for what quality is, that then it becomes a a rule for others to follow. And and actually we, we do this at the company and it's very effective where we'll do product review and it's product managers, designers, essentially presenting their work to me directly and to our our chief product officer. And we're going in and absolutely critiquing the nuance, the detail. And we're doing this in long sessions where others are invited to observe. And the reason being, when you see that level of, let's call it attention to detail, then when you're executing on your own, you're more likely to apply it. I think this is where the idea
0: of it being infectious is true. When you observe it, you're more likely to replicate it. Does the burden of proof fall on you every time? Are you the lowest common denominator of standard? Not necessarily. I I think if I don't set a high standard, almost certainly it won't be followed, but
1: that doesn't mean that other people can't have high standards and bring into the organization. I like to say like your operating principles, your culture are defined by the actions, not by the words. And so if you fail to hold a high standard, but you say, hey, high standards matter, it's almost certainly going to lead to people not necessarily believing that, uh, or at least saying, hey, there's exceptions
0: to that. It has to be authentic to you when, when you say that it matters. Yeah, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, the company that we're dancing around is Motive. Can you give the 30 second or less on like, what does Motive do? Yeah, Motive builds IoT hardware to
1: connect operations and AI powered software to automate the key workflows that our customers have in their business. We serve industries like construction, oil and gas, transportation, logistics, manufacturing, agriculture. And very specifically, all of these industries are defined by the use of their physical assets, commercial vehicles, field workers, drivers. These businesses do physical work. And what we do is we digitize that work. We bring their physical operations online, and then we give them the tooling to manage safety, compliance, sustainability, and kind of the core workflows of their their business. And you two met
0: at KOSLA.
2: We technically actually met uh, a little bit before Coastal Ventures. I had a, a roommate uh, when I was in grad school who was at the Stanford Business School, and we were working on a project. It was one of these business plan competitions. And for that, we had to interview people. And um, I think it was the Palo Alto Whole Foods. That's right. Yeah. Where uh, we, 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 intervie- <laughs> we interviewed somebody for our pitch who sounded very convincing. And it turned out a few years later that it was actually show <laughs> Come on.
1: Uh, yeah. I barely remembered it, but then, you know. Uh, well, we did had the you video remember out. when we you saw each other again? So I, I remembered it when I was reminded of it. Um, I don't think you, I don't think we connected on we it. Didn't I was, connect on I was met, no, we didn't connect on that, no.
2: But I think I found the video again, Yeah, because we, we videotaped the whole interaction. So, <laughs> but yeah, we, we really formatively met at, at Coastal Adventures. I think
1: you were trying to like
0: trace the, like,
2: yeah, the, was like kind of supply the supply of, chain for produce.
1: Which is a big idea. I was a buyer.
0: <laughs> All right, honest answers. First impression. What was your first impression of Ilya when you met him, when you re met him at Koslut? I actually remember this distinctly. I was impressed by... Don't sugarcoat it.
1: Well, well so so, so there, there's the interview and there's the first impression. Yeah, yeah, the, I'm, yeah, yeah. The, the, the proper one, yeah. Well, in, on, at the interview, I, I was trying to make sure that he was going to be a promoter um, and, and that he <laughs> wasn't going to block me and in coming into venture. Um, and so so we, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. And we, I remember we actually talked about a very obscure investment I made in a Australia-based canola oil uh, <laughs> facility. This is... Uh, bad decision. This is pre-venture. I didn't have, I didn't have my mental model yet for for investing. And he was like intensely curious about it in a way that I think gave me confidence that he was someone that I wanted to work with. Like he could understand new information, you know, was, was again, curious about things he didn't actually know or understand, and then could kind of actually give me good feedback.
2: So I remember distinctly about Sharabe is just his zest and propensity to dive deep into a variety of just very different businesses and really try to understand them very deeply and essentially build a model for like a spreadsheet model for everything that he looked at in a way that i thought was really great in succinctly summarizing like the key drivers of that business and also i thought of it always as coming from an entrepreneurial lens like he wanted to figure out like is this a business that somebody could really run and scale? And like, maybe is this a business that I could run and scale? And I thought that was like a unique perspective that he brought to venture. He really tried to understand, like, how does a business work at the fundamentals? And he was a great guy to hang out with.
1: I remember being particularly surprised by the fact that Ilya, as a PhD in physics, investor in clean tech, was really well-versed in consumer internet, enterprise tech, and meanwhile, I mean, he's elite in clean tech, but recognized, hey, returns here are probably not going to be great and very intentionally reoriented himself and kind of recast himself as a completely different type of investor. And then, you know, kind of rose to the top, which it's very hard to be elite at multiple things that are very competitive. And, you know, that, that I think Ilya has done a
0: great job of that.
2: Thanks. The writing was, the writing was on the wall for Queen Tech in, in 2010.
0: Uh, <laughs> so you're at Kosla, You spend two years there. Two years? Yeah. Yeah. Just, right? uh, just over two years. And yep. you were both there for the sa- that same period of time. We, I,
2: I was there for just over a year. So we overlapped for maybe nine months. I yeah. Say? yeah. Yeah.
0: And when did the seed of the idea for, at the time, keep trucking come? So uh, I went into venture very much wanting to build a company. And I I kind of stated that yes. Yes. Like stated goal. Yeah. How long have you known that you wanted to build a company for? Like you telling your mom when you're a kid? Definitely. And and some of this was, uh, again, you you observe
1: your parents and you want to be like them in some ways, or at least uh, are inspired by them. And my dad was always trying to build something. Didn't have, I'd say, any great success or or large commercial success, but he just went right back at it again and again. So I definitely had that. I want to build stuff. I want to solve problems. And I was very intentionally moving down this path of entrepreneurship. Google, big tech company, saw how it operated, then went to startup. Yeah, I got acquired by Google AdMob, and then Kosla was a way of, I'd say, improving my filter. I was kind of hacking on projects on the side, but you know, reflecting back, they were bad. Um, <laughs> I, I had bad ideas, and, and so I, I saw really going in venture as a way of getting to, in a thesis-driven way, pursue markets really explore the nuance and then identify what was a compelling and an opportunity that was a gap. And so I went deep on logistics and, you know, the on-demand consumer side, as well as the commercial moving of freight over the road, ocean freight, rail, and really was struck by uh, trucking in particular as just this giant market that was really disconnected at the time. This is 2011, 2012, um, was more or less operating offline and there was just no entrepreneurship focused on it. You know, for every trucking company focused startup, I would see a hundred that were photo taking apps and social media apps. I um, mean, this was like in the heyday of 2011, 2012. And so to me, it
0: just seemed like a, a real, uh, an opportunity an arbitrage. After you got to Coastal Ventures and then you set out to start a company, once you saw what great looked like, did you get worried? Like, did you ever introspect and be like, shit, do I have the stuff? Looking at the Instacarts of the world, looking at what great actually looks like, having seen the standard for excellence, did you ever have a moment of, maybe I'm an investor? Like,
1: was there any doubt? Without a doubt. I'm uh, a self-conscious in a a productive way. Um, I'd say critical of my own ability and wanting to improve. And you have to kind of start there. Otherwise, if you just have hubris, like you actually very rarely will be successful. What was interesting about seeing you know, many companies come through, uh, was you actually appreciated, there there was a wide range of talent. And some people were blessed with great ideas and right timing. And some people kind of willed their way and grind their way to success. And then there was, you know, a whole bunch of in between. And so I, I actually had confidence that I could build and solve a problem. What I was unsure about was, could I scale a company? Would I be able to continuously evolve myself? But, you know, thankfully, you approach these in stages, right? You don't have to go and build a big company overnight. Nothing great was built big. Everything was a narrow entry point. And so what I was focused on was, what is my narrow entry point? What gets me to the first base? And then I can
0: figure out what comes after that. Mm-hmm. And then how did you link up with him on this?
2: So so we didn't reconnect um, really until like 2013, I don't think. I was a Dropbox at the time. We had just launched Dropbox for Business. Uh, there was a sort of parallel to... How Keep Trucking was going about their business in acquiring individual smaller truck companies, like owner, what are called owner operators, upselling them, giving them free software at the time, and then upselling them on the hardware. So it was very similar from a go-to-market motion perspective and some product functionality. So we we were hanging out, I think I was maybe moonlighting for Max Lefchin at the time on his seed fund. So I think there was some conversation about an investment there. But ultimately we really truly reconnected in a professional way. I mean, socially, we would we would hang out. Quite a bit uh, was really in twenty fifteen, where I wound up leading the the Series A of Keep Trucking. Uh, it was my first Series A I did when I came back to in, to venture. First one, first one at, at Index Ventures. Uh, it was the Series D of Slack, and then the Series A of Keep Trucking. It was fun. I mean, it was kind of a little crazy to actually back a close friend. Is that at awkward? The time. It's not awkward. It's but, a little awkward. But you, no, it's it's just it's just you kind of like you you almost you have this personal relationship that you're actually you're worried like am I putting that in jeopardy? Right. Right. Yeah. Can you navigate both? Because, by the way, the h- trajectory of keep trucking was tumultuous. Uh, yeah, as it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, <laughs> were moments, there, there were moments of excitement and also moments of awkward intensity. But really, uh, by the way, the, the, the you know, really got me over the edge was, by the way, my wife, who was like, hey, Shraib is awesome. You're super close friends. <laughs> <No way>. He's <laughs> going to run through walls. He's got this like incredible drive. Like you'd be an idiot not to work with him. And that was a huge catalyst. Eva has a great eye for yeah, talent. Yeah, for sure. she does. And two, two out of two, right? <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, so, and at the time, it was it was a big bet company in the sense that this idea to basically digitize the physical economy, right? Like how goods and things move around the world, like how things get built. Essentially, like all the physical infrastructure you see around us is ultimately powered by things moving around and getting from point A to point B. Digitizing all that is a huge prize, and trucking was at the core of that, but there was incredible resistance to digitization of trucking in the average, sort of like the whole market. It happened at the higher ends because you got a bunch of efficiency, but the individual sort of owner-operator didn't really want to do it, uh, and it was this big bet that this electronic logging device mandate, ELD mandate which is, was ultimately a safety regulation uh, because truckers tend to drive long hours, they get tired, so you have to make sure you regulate that and avoid accidents. That was going to be a big forcing function. It was kind of like a, if that happens and these hundreds of thousands of trucking companies have to go and install these electronic logging devices and software, this business is going to totally work. But if it doesn't work out, like this business might actually not work. It was kind of a very um, narrow window.
1: Bimodal distribution. Bimodal distribution. Zero or or billions. Yeah. 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 But but I want to comment on like this idea of working with friends. I was actually pretty apprehensive initially and, but really flipped for me was, you, you realize the level of communication required is almost inversely proportional to the amount of trust in a relationship. And so deep trust, high trust relationship, mm-hmm. because we've known each other, um, we've got a lot of game footage on each other, we know how each other operates, and it allows for a very seamless work experience. The way we communicate is over texts and casually constantly keeping up to date on the business mm. rather than, hey, this formal, you must you come to board meetings, obviously, but like that shouldn't be the primary way you, you, you get up to date on the business. And I think that's where having a, a personal connection kind of allows for just more continuous transfer of information.
2: And, you know, by the way, in early state venture, the biggest risk at the end of the day, the biggest unknown, rather, that you're, you're taking out as an investor is the founding team, right? In the market, you know, things like that you can do some diligence on, but when you have a you know, two, three week process to make an investment and you meet somebody in that very condensed window of time, it's really hard to truly know the person. And here, like almost near perfect information, right? And then so I knew that I could bet on Shereb. I knew that he would run through walls. He has this immigrant mentality history, has been wanting to build a business, is just really in it to win it. And that eliminated a lot of like the biggest part of the uncertainty you could have in an investment.
0: Yeah, but isn't the canonical advice invest in the person who's steeped in that industry, who's been working on a problem forever. You have nothing to do with the work that you're in.
2: I was impressed, Sherry, like Sherry, uh, you can talk about the early days. I spent a bunch of time, I think his trucker name was Sam. Uh, he's been, he's been,
1: <laughs>
0: what do you <laughs> mean his trucker name was Sam? <laughs> that just lowers friction when people yeah. can say your name. <laughs> Dude, trust me, you're telling me. Yeah, I'm Jack yeah. at Starbucks. I think he
2: was like <laughs> hanging out at uh, truck stops in Gilroy, like interviewing trucker. I mean, it was just like in it to figure it out. And, and look, like some of the greatest founders of the greatest companies are ultimately first-time founders, mm. right? And in many cases, sure, they might have a technical background, so they're doing a software company. But at the end of the day, it's really the sort of innate drive and and that piece around deeply understanding businesses and how they work. And this ultimately being a hardware and software company, rather than a trucking company, or now an IoT company, a platform, that's really the key focus. And, And so... You know specificity, and frankly, like if he had spent a bunch of time in trucking, um, he probably wouldn't have started this company, and it would have been hard to bet on a true transformation in that space.
1: Yeah, it was classic like innovators' dilemma. The incumbents were not going to do this because they were bound to a very different model yeah. uh, of the world. Um, essentially monetizing their hardware rather than really the software services. And we were highly disruptive. We actually went in with no hardware. You could use your phone initially. And it was unlikely, it was impossible that, that an incumbent from the industry- Free. Use your phone for free if you're a trucker. That's right. Um, a free app to do logs on your phone. Um, when I say narrow entry point, it was like literally like there was this compliance requirement, paper log. We took that paper experience, put it in an app, and it was a hit. And actually, you actually, know, so many investors passed for the reasons you cite, hey, they don't know trucking. Um, then it was, uh, they don't know hardware. And this is at each funding round you're saying? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I think the best investors who pass eventually come back around and they'll like, they'll reflect on where they came up short. And I, it's always fun to to, meet, to bump into folks who you know looked at our A's and B and are and like, I'm bummed. And I, I know that you know, that, was, that was And then
0: when the, so between the seed and the A, when you let it, you're giving away the app for free to truckers, and Sam was hanging around truck stops? <laughs> like, what was Sam doing at truck stops?
1: Yeah. Well, so, so a few things. Um, uh, <laughs> Sam. Here, well, Sam, and I should also say Obeyed, my, my co-founder and and, and uh, COO, I mean, he was living at truck stops before we started the company. I mean, he literally moved Testing the idea and, on
0: your behalf, basically.
1: And, yes. And then also just validating or understanding how these folks lived. What were the other problems in their life? And to really solve a problem in a high quality way, you have to have deep empathy. And you can't just read about their life. You have to like almost experience it to really, truly really build empathy. And then, and then, so, so, so there was that, like just let's understand our, our user. But then there was, let's go and validate the details of what we're building. We do UX research and we just hang out at truck stops. And- record the sessions, get live feedback and input, and then directly influence the the direction of the product on the basis of that. So yeah, we spent a lot of time really directly connecting with our audience. Are you nostalgic of those days? There's a part of me that loves it and misses that uh, when you could turn around and- Everybody in the company was in the same room. Um, you could you could almost like pass ideas non-verbally. Um, you could almost feel uh, people's reactions. Um, but I mean, you, you also I love operating at scale now too. Um, yeah, it's, it's so I'm much. I'm sure fun. you don't miss
0: like the existentialism of going zero to one. Yeah,
1: it was it was a really challenging four years. I mean, to be clear, we were four years of zero revenue. Um, four
0: years until the A. You're saying
2: no, even even after the even after early. the
0: A. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, like we, we had a vision. You just haven't monetized anything yet. That's right. We were building this free
1: platform um, and essentially seeding the market and, and had very meaningful adoption
0: among drivers and trucking companies for what was effectively a free SaaS product. And you both saw this bottoms up freemium model of go to market before. Like You've both seen this thing work. We just give this thing away, build a groundswell, then figure out how to monetize it later.
2: Yeah, th- I mean, that was essentially the model for Dropbox, yeah. right? You had a bunch of free yep. users, and then yep. they convert and eventually upgrade to business. And so that was the plan. Like,
0: that was the- Absolutely. That was the intended- that, Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- and I'd seen it as an investor. Um, Expensify was a great example, right? Yeah. I mean, give away that free utility and then upsell the business, the accounting manager, the controller. Um, in this case, it was give away the free utility logs to the drivers, upsell the safety manager, the fleet manager. And I believed it. Ilya believed it. Uh, not many others did at the yeah. time, uh, <laughs> And, and but, but but some of this was also, hey, there's this regulatory requirement. The way we were going to monetize was there was a mandate for the use of uh, the hardware uh, that yeah. Ilya was speaking to, essentially that would connect to the engine and be this complement to the app to have an immutable record of the vehicle's movement, essentially to make sure that logs weren't being falsified, that the hours were being adhered right. to. And so we had total confidence that when the mandate was going to kick in, adoption was going to accelerate, it got delayed, it took time. and. there was real risk that there was lots of legal challenges. Um,
0: It wasn't a slam dunk. Were those years, for lack of a better word, awkward? You've raised some seed money. You've left your cushy venture job. You're in a trucking market. You've decided on this go-to-market motion of giving away the product for free and for years. I mean, years in startup land feels like lifetimes. I just can't imagine you had the warm and fuzzies at that point (laughs) going to Ilya for the Series A having made no
1: money. Yeah, there was definitely existential moments where we were running out of money, had to make hard decisions, extend runway, and had some real doubt without question was this the right play was this the right move is this the right thing I could be doing but it's impossible it's possible not to have doubts if you don't have doubt if you're not really criticizing your own thinking and critiquing your worldview you're almost certainly not going to actually build a great company and you have to continuously have doubt right it's not just one moment we get over the threshold and now it's smooth sailing and, and, and actually the, the when we failed is when we've through hubris when and we were like, oh, like we got this. We got step one right, step two right. Of course, step three is going to be right. And and that's where you know the, the mistakes around building a marketplace um, really, I think, stem from.
2: It was hard through the Series C really. Like the Series B was probably the most tense moment because the company had scale, had a bunch of people using the product, a bunch of companies using the product, had already built out their own hardware, they used off-the-shelf hardware first, and then decided to build their own hardware team going full steam ahead. And the mandate just keep, kept getting extended and extended and extended. And I think that B was a really hard fundraise. We had some, I remember, existential conversations about like, where is this really going? Luckily raised the great Series B with, with scale. And then I think it was like that year or the year after you went from a million of run rate to like 35 or something like that in a single year. Yeah, it, that.
1: It, was, it was one to about 50, sorry, 12 50, months. Yeah, um, 12 from months, April yeah. to April, April 2017 to Before April. The B? Right, after, right the, after the B. Right after the yeah. B. Yeah. It was it was an absolute wild run. And I mean, to, to be honest, like, we were hardware constrained. It was like, we couldn't manufacture enough devices to satiate the demand. I mean, we could have probably done 100, one to
0: hundred in, in, in 18 months if, if we had- How weird was it well? switching from desperate existential mode to, oh my God, we literally can't keep up. Even having seen it from the other side, you probably had like a bird eyes view of like, oh my God, it's happening. Like we just found product market fit, like it's on. And then all the things that you said about scaling as a CEO and all that, like all that happens very fast. Yeah,
1: yeah, the cycle time was massively compressed, especially given what we had come through, which was quite a protracted cycle. You know, it was it was challenging. There was the technical challenges of keeping the platform up and actually like being able to deliver on the customer expectation. And and, and that's consumed a lot of the energy initially. Uh, and then we, we kind of secured that, There was an element of growing up as as a CEO where I didn't have traditionally, you'd go through like two VP of sales between one and 50, maybe three. And and we we didn't have (sighs) that opportunity to kind of learn fail, build better judgment. I think Slootman has the the quote, good judgment comes through bad judgment. You have to kind of actually experience failure. And so it was just incredibly rapid. I definitely made mistakes. But also I'd say in the things that I knew were absolutely critical, take our VP of engineering search. It was so obvious that if we were going to be able to actually go beyond this, you know, ELD mandate driven business, uh, we were going to have to really you know, there had to be act two, act three. We had to build a platform. Mm -hmm. Our customers needed a platform. Mm -hmm. Um, They wanted to manage the entirety of their operations, not just compliance. And we needed exceptional engineering leadership. We couldn't miss. That would have been a devastating mishire. And so what I did was I met everybody that was exceptional in the market, that wasn't unavailable. And then it was a 12 month long search until I found uh, Shiva, who who, um, is still today, our CTO. And it was probably the most consequential decision. And so knowing when to flex patience, despite the cycle time compressing is, is really, really important. Yeah. I've
0: said another way, like knowing which ones are one way versus two day, two way doors. Totally. Yeah. I have heard you say that if you were starting another company again, one of the first hires you would make is a recruiter. It kind of reminds me of just the emphasis that you're putting on talent in the early days in hiring. Yeah. I think we had someone some of it was good fortune. We had a really strong original team yeah. uh,
1: and everybody kind of brought in their best people. And then, you know, to some degree, it becomes self-fulfilling. If you bring in great people, they're going to set a super high standard and won't tolerate anything else. And then what you reward in the organization becomes what people follow. And so we'd lift up the best people and thus it was very clear and we'd accelerate them, we'd reward them financially, but also from an opportunity perspective. And so it was clear that high performance rewarded and that led to other great people coming into the company. That said, I think having a recruiter early on just lets you go and make contact with the market more aggressively like you don't want to fall into like local optimals you want global optimals generally i mean you can't fully globally optimize always but you want to see beyond just your immediate network and so this is where having i think
0: full-time recruiter it just makes a huge difference early on okay but like are you guys still hanging out like uh, as this is happening like are you guys still I don't know. He's like having wine together or is it like oh my god this is a real business like we need to separate.
2: Oh and when the when the, like when the things ramp are working. No, we were like holy crap this is amazing. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like <laughs> actually I think even all, all along the way we've been pretty good at separating the both intensity what's working what isn't working at the company from uh our personal
0: relationships. So you're telling me when you hang out you're not talking shop?
2: Well, we we do. we do, but but it's like you have a segmented conversation about that and then you kind of You put that to rest and then you go on with the personal side of it.
1: Yeah. And all the like the full range of things that we're interested in, which there's a lot of overlap in. So like it's it's kind of nice being able to explore not just the narrow company
0: interest. Yeah. And at the time, are you thinking, okay, maybe it's my role to inject a little tension into this business? Like, yes, obviously it's working. Does he need more attaboys at this point or is this an opportunity to apply a little bit of pressure?
2: Um, I but think did at, you have an instinct there No I think at that point frankly we were all just happy that the thesis worked yeah right It was kind of you know a little backslapping and sort of let's actually take advantage of this opportunity and I think per the point on talent like that was the moment to step on the gas in recruiting great people right uh, and that was the moment to go raise a great series C to really capitalize the business to set the valuation at where it needed to be so it was a really sort of like what do we need to do in the next six to 12 months and let's focus on those priorities. I don't think it was sort of a inject tension or it was really just say, hey, like, okay, it's working. It's at a, at a real scale, really fast. Like, what do we need to have in place for this to actually not keel over, but get to the promised land?
0: Yeah.
1: I think Ilya did a great job of being patient and empathetic while we were figuring it out and waiting for the market to come. But then also really pressing in a thoughtful way, not an aggressive way on, hey, it's time to up-level the team. You've got to go and think about who else needs to be here and what skills do we currently lack that are going to be sources of competitive advantage and and essential really uh, for the next stage of the company. And then importantly, like helping me go out and get that talent and close that talent, which is critical.
0: Was it a thoughtful exercise for you having come from the venture side once the business started to rip, picking very judiciously, who would then join your board? Obviously, it's harder when the company is grinding. I wonder if there is any intentionality at that point. Absolutely. So having been in venture and having seen a number of,
1: uh, let's call it different board dynamics, I knew the one I wanted. And you know, you don't always have a good fortune of picking your board member. Sometimes you have to take the deal that's on the table. But we always, I think, were able to get great people who aligned with our values and with, uh, I think, my timescale, you know, that we were building a, yeah. a really a generational company. I want to build a 50 or year, 100 year company and we're oriented around growth uh, and we're willing to, let's call it be aggressive in pursuit of it. You know, that idea of implied odds, like being able to take the bet today, knowing that the immediate return may not be there, but the long-term return is. And this is where ultimately, going back to that idea of working with friends, our Series D was led by Neil Mehta from Green Oaks, who is one of my very close friends. We, we went to college together. We've known each other for you know almost 20 years now. And getting to work with him and Ilya and Joe Kraus, who I'd uh, known really well. And these people who have, we've accumulated a ton of trust. They care deeply about me. And they kind of are, let's call it uh, timeline aligned, right? They're long-term oriented, Mm -hmm. low discount rate on the future, uh, those types. And I've been able to really assemble a board that does that. And then, of course, Ilya rejoining, you know, at at our Series
0: F. What do you mean low discount rate on the future?
1: How willing are you to trade near-term gain for long-term opportunity. And if you have a very high discount rate in the future, you're, you're thinking about next quarter, next year. You're not thinking about
0: five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So the Series C is raised. And is that, was it the Series C or the D that then you went to bet on freight?
1: So it was it was actually in between the C and the D. The Can weight. we talk about this? Do, yeah, you, do you mind? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were some real lessons here for me personally, and then for the company, of course this comes back to the founding story. The founding narrative was we're going to connect trucks. There's going to be a free app. Then there's going to be an ELD mandate. And then we're going to have this network of trucks where we're going to have deep insight into where they are, where they want to go, how much time they have available to drive. We'll have essentially built this virtual fleet. And we had it. We had hundreds of thousands of drivers, trucks, and and trucking companies in our network. And and it was a proprietary network in that sense, right? No one else had, had, there was no other device installed in their vehicle. And so it, it seemed actually quite natural that we would be able to build just a a much better marketplace experience. Uh, The way freight was transacted up until then was really over the phone. Uh, You you had brokers, these, these mediated market makers calling truck drivers saying, hey, can you take this load? Can you take this load? Can you take this load? and running a manual auction. And so, well, we had the data to run potentially an automated auction and a much more competitive auction. Like we had more visibility, we had more trucks and yep. greater visibility. And so it was almost like the fulfillment of the prophecy, right? Um, we got in step one and step two, right? Of course, we're going to get step three, right? And so so we acquired a small freight brokerage. Uh, and this is, I think, middle of 2018, late 2018. And we go big. We scaled up to 200 people, almost $100 million, I think north of $100 million of revenue run rate and we realize there is an advantage. We have a marginal advantage in, in, in how we uh, can actually broker freight, uh, but it's not a jaw-dropping customer experience. It's not transformative. And we ultimately decided to actually shut it down for that reason, because we didn't believe that we could actually deliver a unique customer value. Yeah. But also it was a distraction. It was taking resources away from our principal mission, which was to make companies that operate in the physical economy safer and more efficient. And so hard decision, but once we kind of arrived at it, it was actually uh, fairly obvious.
0: Yeah. I mean, you went on CNBC, like you're
1: talking, it gets the whole thing, Yeah, right? Yeah. We, every all hands, we'd talk about it. It was our mission, yeah. connect, connect the world's trucks, automate it's the, the world's future freight. future of the company. It, it is the future of the company. How long did that last?
0: How long from we're doing freight to we're killing freight? Well, I mean, almost from day one, we said we were doing freight, right? I mean, if yeah, you look it was our, part of the pitch. It
2: was, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was literally yeah.
1: the pitch. Yeah. Um, so 2013, we didn't actually go and execute on it until really start talking about it and the plans around it uh, until 2018, once we got through that ELD mandate and we had actually right. the trucks. So almost five years of that being kind of the story we woke up telling ourselves every day.
0: From 2013 to 18, you're saying? Yeah. I'm fascinated by this, by the way. And I, I think it's probably under talked about how often things like this happen in businesses. How long did you have that feeling in your stomach? Like, oh shit. And was that compounded with the fact that you just raised a bunch of money from most of your friends who are now (laughs) on the board, you know, and you've built this vision for the company. You obviously feel a deep sense of responsibility. That must have been insane inside.
1: Yeah, it was painful. And to your point, like, it's not like you wake up one day a week before
0: it happens, before you you decide to shut it down and
1: you're like, oh, a moment of clarity, time to go. You you have
0: this continuous doubt. It's like having someone on your team that's bad, that you know is bad, but it takes you so long to muster up the courage to let that person go. Yeah. Except it's like, you're bad. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah. like The the, the strategy that you
1: conceived and the story you've been telling is false. And so, yeah, deep self-doubt. How long did it last? Do you remember? I probably started to really doubt the opportunity and our opportunity within it six months in. So by middle of 2019, early, mid, mid 2019, uh, I knew this wasn't going to work. And it was a challenging situation because we were still, you know, guns blazing. We were, we were going in. Spending Um, a bunch of money hiring, et cetera. Yeah. And and yeah, we, we, we hired all the way until Q3. And it's actually painful to recall this because like I had to continue down that path because we were going to try to fund the company for the next phase on the basis of it. And it's not like I was like, oh, this isn't going to work at all. It was, I don't think we have the most fundamental advantage that we thought we had. And we're fighting a battle against other startups that have a single-threaded mission around this. There's nothing else going on. And they've raised billions of dollars, literally. I mean, if you look cumulatively, the space for freight brokerage, digital freight brokerage, I mean, there's billions of dollars raised. M- mind you, I believe that the return on invested capital in this category is going to be very low. I don't think these are venture scale businesses. And that's a, maybe an aside. But, but I, I thought, okay, we're going to attempt to fundraise on it and try to do both still. But I had doubts on our ability to actually do it in a really high quality way. And then, you know, come end of 2019, it was just very clear. Like I, that had gone from doubts on the ability
0: to build something great to like doubts on our ability to do it at all. Yeah. Yeah. And then when's the first time you find out about this? I'm super curious.
2: Well, I had already stepped off the board in 2018 right. when I moved from Index to KP. I think we spoke early in the second half of 2019 or sometime maybe maybe around Q3 of 2019. Because before that, we'd spoken and it was like, holy crap, this vision is actually working like geniuses, right? <laughs> <laughs> Completely called it. Yeah. And I think we'd spoken about that. I, I was super excited about it. It was great. Like, we called it right. This is totally going to work. And then we reconnected. And I remember you sort of having that existential doubt and chatting a bit about, hey, like the right answer is the right answer for the business. Like you kind of have to course correct here because you can't have the sunk cost fallacy. And if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. And you have to just really orient on the business that that makes sense.
1: Yeah, there were so many reasons to, to move away from it. But but actually, the, the thing that would I would continue to come back to was, is this generating value for our customers, and our customers being the companies that had bought our hardware and software, the trucking companies and now construction businesses and oil and gas companies and the others that, that use our, our tech. And I simply could not say with any kind of confidence that it was actually creating value for our customers. And so we had, we had essentially built a whole new product and a whole new service for a completely new customer base, shippers. And that was a real mistake. And I actually, like, you know, one of the reflections I have here is if you have the opportunity to pursue a second act, or a third act, it's either taking your existing product and finding new customers for it so you get some product leverage or building adjacent functionality for your existing customers. Those are really the two success modes for second, third act. It's very rare to see a company build something completely orthogonal. And in this case, it was because, yeah, there was trucks carrying the freight, but the customer was a shipper. We knew nothing about shippers. We, we, we had never actually sold anything to them in the past. And so why take on effectively a completely new business. You think you saved the company? Killing it? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no, no question. I think it would have, it wouldn't have been a zero because we had, you know, we had at that point a hundred million dollars of sure. recurring revenue yeah. on the software side and, and like a, you know, a customer base that deeply valued our, our, yeah. our hardware platform and our fleet management platform. But it, it was clear that we would have not been able to maintain or our, extend our lead on the fleet management side, and there was well-resourced competitors there.
0: And in fact, that we would have run out of cash as a business. Totally. Um,
1: not immediately,
0: but eventually. In hindsight, did that change any of your framing around how you make bets in the company? Maybe the process with which you make a bet? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So
1: there's this framework that you know, I've shared with our product team and with our leadership team in general, which is really customer-driven. When we fail it is because we have not understood the customer problem deeply and allowed them to guide us toward the problems that they need us to solve. And and that should be about 75% of an enterprise software company's execution. It's customer driven and really figuring out what's the next dimension of their need. The other 25% can be these bets where they may not be telling you that they need something, but you have a view of the world, you have a vision for the future that you believe will come true uh, in in some reasonable timeline. And so on that 25% that are, let's call it, vision for the future bets, it still has to be driven by this framework, which is build an adjacent product for your current customers or take your product or, or a variant of it and go and find a new application, a new customer set. I think we've now really adopted that, and and it's been quite successful. And then there's a second bit, which is everything should be a lean effort. You should never go and put 200 people at a problem overnight. What you should do is find a great leader and effectively make it a startup within the company. And and that's, you know, we we launched a fuel card product. It's really a spend management platform for the physical economy, Um, uh, construction businesses, Mm -hmm. trucking companies, oil and gas companies. They need tools to manage how their people spend, where they spend, how much they can spend. And that should be deeply integrated with your telematics and your fleet management platform. That, that's what we believe in the future will be an expectation. And the way we built this spend management platform was one of our PMs championed it, identified the opportunity, built the case, commanded uh, the resources, but it was literally like a venture bet. We, we essentially said, here's a million and a half dollars He went and actually acquired, aqua hired a team of eight people and we isolated it. We we put it on the side and didn't absorb it into the organization until it was very clear that there was product market fit and and, and almost like product market pull that customers uh,
0: demanded this. Yeah. Enrique from Brex, when he was reflecting on the crazy times over the last few years, he said, look, Jubin, the one thing I wish we did was sequential decision-making rather than concurrent. And his reflection was one of, we had too much money. And the result of too much money was being able to do everything at the same time. However, the organization physically can't do that. And so it kind of reminds me of what you're saying, like park it to the side, do the main thing, keep the main thing, the main thing, and then figure out how to sequence these decisions rather than doing them together. That's exactly right. Yeah. You have to pursue
1: things generally in series rather than parallel. And taking on a second or third act should only happen you don't have to be the market share leader. That will take, you know, for us, 10 years. But you should be on the path, very clear path, to flow share leadership. Switchers, new adopters of the product are overwhelmingly buying you. Because if you're the flow share leader, eventually you will be the market share leader. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and, and, so, and so so that that concept I think is, is really important, has to be on the side until your core products are, are at a maturity level where they are effectively the market leaders. And then importantly, that idea of less but better, just focus and channel your resources on the things that really do matter and strip away all the noise in series, not parallel.
0: Yeah. And then Ilya, for you, how do you think about as a board member, because the data shows us that the biggest companies all have second and third products and they usually happen within a certain time frame. And you probably know that, right? Yeah. Like, first of all, do you agree with that?
2: So I think if you look at the biggest companies out there, of course they have multiple products, right? And there's actually a really great book about the history of Microsoft called hard drive. It goes back to like the early, really truly early days of you know Bill Gates dropping out of college and, and pursuing this. And by reading that you really see exactly how sequential, the build-out of Microsoft was. Because if you think about Microsoft today, it's this platform company, it's got all these products, they are all integrated, it's massive revenue scale. And I think that's a little bit of you know, a bit of, a, of a head fake that uh, has existed in the tech startup ecosystem where you, you aspire to become one of these platform companies, but you forget exactly how long and how sequentially they were built. But that said, like of course, if you see an opportunity to expand wallet share within an existing customer set or use your resources to find adjacencies, you should absolutely take advantage of that. And the big reason we we invested out of Kleiner Perkins into, into Motive is we're seeing that with a new set of products today. Rippling is another example of a company that's following a similar path where you have a customer, you can just sell so much more to them, but you have to be very, very careful about how you resource and sequence and precisely careful about when you can call something a success or not. The biggest mistakes are made when you're you've convinced yourself that this is going to be the right thing and you over allocate resources to it, and then you have to pull back at scale. And it's incredibly difficult to do that with two hundred you know a few hundred people from just an organizational morale perspective, yeah. right yeah. because it's it's a real shock that it, the system has to absorb. So you're much better off seeing if these things really stick and then expanding them slowly and then compounding them in a very thoughtful way than sort of saying all in, like we have now an opportunity to go build act two. And look, at the end of the day when when we think about investments, like we, Every everything you can think of, every great company you can think of has multiple acts, but you kind of want like act one to be big enough to build a real sustainable standalone business that can actually fund those acts potentially without external investment.
0: Yeah. You and I have talked about this in the past, but do you think that we just got everybody got ahead of their skis over the last couple of years in the sense that, yeah, exactly what you're describing?
2: Well, to, to a certain extent, yes, in the sense that the opportunity for software and for motive for all these companies like the, the TAM is giant right? It's truly giant. It's like every, all the physical economy, like all the trillions of dollars that go into like the stuff that we touch and use every day. So the opportunity is there, the market sizes are there. It's absolutely kind of the right response to try to capture that as quickly as possible. But you do get into the physics and the friction of just organizations. And so you kind of like, it's an art, frankly, more than a science. Um, So I, I don't think you can fault anyone, entrepreneurs or investors in trying to pursue these opportunities. But I think with The benefit of hindsight, of course, I think folks would have done it in different ways in the last three years.
0: So you join KP, then you're raising a series F. That's right. Series F. Take out the bat phone, call Ilya. Like what's the deal? Tell me the process. And so freight had happened. You knew about freight. You knew what's going on with the business. At this point, I think when you get the call, it's on fire. This business is on fire. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, you rip the Band-Aid off? We ripped the Band-Aid off. We
1: reoriented ourselves toward our core mission, which was to unlock the potential of the physical economy to, to serve our, our customers mm. through connectivity and automation, bringing their, their vehicles online, bringing their equipment online, their assets online, and helping them improve safety, efficiency, productivity of their operations. And that bet was the right one. Clearly, uh, we were you know, able to reduce our burn, but m- most importantly, uh, redirect our people toward one problem. So the business reaccelerated in a major way. Growth is exceptional at scale. Uh, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of ARR, growing at a very high rate. And at that point, we know that we are a very large TAM ability to compound at a high rate for a long time and lessons learned on what not to do yeah. um, to pursue growth. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm now thinking, okay, we're going to, we should be thinking about building a durable, lasting company. And that means going public, but the market has changed this was you know april 2022 and the ipo window essentially shut Uh, and so we're raising our series f and Ilya and i you know reconnect around it and and he leads
0: our series f along with insight and our insiders you know what's interesting is um in 2018 you hired the head of ai from Uber to be your CPO. Is that right? The head of the ML platform. Okay. Um, but, but, but essentially
1: the infrastructure that powers their AI.
0: Yeah. And it's funny now, everybody kind of feels pressure to be like the AI company. And it seems like that was a calculated decision. Again, I have no idea. Yeah. But just looking at some of the hires that you made pretty early on as a core competency of the business.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. What we recognized was... There was a lot of focus on let's call it the autonomous trucking and, and the automation of commercial vehicles, and I believe that this will come about. Level four will be realized in long haul commercial transportation. What is level four? Essentially, in the vast majority of environments, uh, a, a, driver, a driver being able—sorry, a vehicle being able to operate itself. Yes, but the timescale matters, and my belief was that there was an opportunity to build. AI that would assist the driver to make them safer and more efficient on the road you know, and augment them rather than to replace them. And so in 2017, we actually acquired an AI company. Essentially, uh, they were building a consumer computer vision application and uh, redirected them to build our first dash cam essentially. And what we were building here was not just a, a recording of what happened with the driver, or with the vehicle in the case of an accident, but actually real-time observation of that driver. Are they using their phone? Are they drowsy? Are they distracted? Are they following too closely? Some of the core unsafe behaviors that lead to preventable accidents. And our, our belief was that AI dashcams would essentially transform road safety. And there would be a, a ton of market pull for it at this point. You know, at that time, maybe 5% of trucks had, had a dashcam at all. None had an AI dashcam. Cam. And so we made the long investment here. We, we acquired that team, and then Jay, who, who joined us as our chief product officer, was kind of the ideal product leader, and Shiva was the ideal technical leader, g- given he led the ML platform at Twitter for knowing what great looked like here. And we made a, essentially a four-year R and D investment uh, that ultimately led to uh, what is you know the best performing technology in this market our camera tech is really exceptional. It reduces accidents by uh, around 50%, which is financially incredibly consequential, right? I mean, insane ROI. This is like a $200 camera that reduces your accident rate by 50%, but like huge societal benefit. You know, road fatalities are actually increasing after 50 years of decline. Now in the last three years, they're they're, they're up uh, sequentially. And uh, it is just very, very clear that if you can make that driver more alert, and more aware of their own behaviors, you can actually prevent accidents and save lives. And that's really one of our core missions now.
0: Do you think about competition, honestly? Do you have a framing on how you think about competition? Is that something that's top of mind for you? I think it's very easy to say, stay in your swim lane, focus on yourself. Don't worry about anybody else. I wonder how applicable that is when you're in it. It's impossible not to be aware
1: of competition in an enterprise sale. Uh, it is zero sum, at least in our market, right? You're not gonna deploy some on this product and, and others on this product. It's We win or lose, uh, and that deal is not gonna be available for another probably four years. And once you get in, you're not going to be able to actually remove the incumbent unless they are really letting the customer down to the point, you know, we build painkillers, not vitamins. I mean, this is tech that once you're in, you can't operate without it. And so we have to be aware of competition. We have to know who's doing what and why we lose. But it has to be through not the lens of, I want to build something different, but rather I want to understand the customer problem and I want to build something better. It is very rare that companies, products that seek differentiation for difference sake lead to better products. Better products are almost always different. We always think about what can we do better to serve that customer. It can be informed by what our competitors doing well or not, but if you get over-oriented around that, uh, you lose sight of what really
0: matters, which is are you solving the customer problem? Yeah, I think it's um, well are you said. creating customer value? I think it's really well said. How many examples do you have, Ilya, of companies losing to competition versus to themselves?
2: I mean, I think the adage is like most companies die by suicide, not homicide, but competition can be real, right? We're seeing it play out in the enterprise market where, let's say, bottoms up adopted productivity software kind of hits the brick wall of Microsoft. And uh, you're seeing that in the Uber Lyft battle, right? Um, That's kind of an epic one. So it happens. You just, I think it goes back to what what Shreve's articulating, which is in the market, how do you segment it? How do you find the customers that you are better off serving? How do you really own that customer? How do you wall it off? And how can you be intellectually honest with yourself about what your opportunity is versus a competitor and what your advantages and disadvantages are? But for the most part, at least early on in the company's trajectory, it's really self-inflicted wounds. The ultimate scale that you can get to can be dictated by competitors, especially in mature markets or busy markets. And so you have to have a real clear vision and strategy for how you're going to execute at the bigger scales. And not to over-reference books here, but there's a really good uh, book about kind of the strategy framework of Procter & Gamble, and it's called Playing to Win, How Strategy Really Works. And you actually don't really have to read a lot of it. You kind of get in pretty quickly, and understand like, ask basic questions like, what's our real sort of mission here? Like, what do we want to accomplish? Who is really our customer? A lot of times it's like everyone's a customer, but it's not really everyone. There's a particular customer you can have what is our advantage vis-a-vis that customer in the market? And like, what do you have to have in place in order to pursue that segment? And if you go through that exercise, it sounds pretty simple. Like you can actually get to a lot of clarity. Uh, And I think a lot of the mistakes or missteps, especially even in competitive situations happen when you sort of try to directly compete with an opponent on their playing field, right? You're saying like, okay, I'm going to do the thing that they're doing and just copy it and not Listen to my customer and not tailor it for the market segment that I really want to operate in. And that's when you can get into trouble, especially if your competitor is big, well-funded, or has a distinct advantage. And so it's really understanding the capabilities and needs of the customer and how to address them that I think becomes critical as you try to scale up in a competitive dynamic.
0: This is going to be tough for you guys to answer, but I'll give you two options and you can pick which road you want to go down. The first, what's the toughest feedback you've given each other? And if you don't feel like answering that, what's the toughest feedback you've ever gotten? And the framing for the right answer to this is whatever immediately makes your heart skip and gives you a little bit of anxiety inside. I'll let you go first.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, repeat the first part. It's the toughest. Each other,
0: the toughest feedback you've ever given Shoaib or the toughest feedback that someone's ever given you?
2: I mean, I think the toughest conversation we had to have, the one that I dreaded the most, was frankly around the Series B of the company. Because it was like a, you know, I had gone to my partners and I said, hey, can we extend runway here? And they said, no. <laughs> you know, this, has been, this has been a company that makes no revenue for a few years. Like it's a big vision, but when is this mandate happening? And I had to go back to show and tell him like, my friend, right, that I've been working with, like grinding in this in this sort of early stage company, helping him that, you know, I can't really extend his runway. And if we can't raise a, a Series B, we should probably try to find alternative sort of directions and maybe, you know, find an acquire things like that. That's probably the hardest conversation to bring, right? Because again, it, it brings together that personal relationship and the business aspect in, in a real head-on collision.
0: In the back of your mind, were you counting on Ilya to get it done?
1: I knew that well, when you're in venture, you realize that there's constraints, right? Yeah. It's not just an individual uh, yeah. sport. It's a yeah. team game here. Yeah. And you've got partners that you've got to make sure you bring along. And so while I knew he believed we were going to get there, he had high confidence. Maybe, you know, you can't be irrationally confident. There's <laughs> there's, there's definitely scenarios in which he, I'm sure, had not a zero, but, but something less uh, written down. I knew that he had constraints. And so I, I didn't have an expectation that he was going to be able to like give me the money blindly. And so w- what, what I did was, okay, and, and this wasn't just Ilya, it was Ilya and Joe Kraus who was um, the investor from GV. I kind of had my, let's call it plan B. Which was to reduce the size of the team, which was really challenging because all the market signals were incredibly positive this time, right? We were actually seeing acceleration and growth. This was pre-Series B, but it was very clear that th- that this thing was going to take off. And to let go of people at that moment, mm-hmm. lose capacity when we should have been adding it, really was tough.
2: Just to put it in perspective, Sherabe's Series B fundraising plan, I think, called for a $1 to $25 million ramp in a yeah. 12-month window. yeah for a company that hadn't made no money before. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Which, so, both <laughs> Ilya and Joe, I think admittedly, or rationally at the time, well, actually, no, I, I'm gonna challenge that. I, I actually think if you, if you believe a mandate was gonna happen, on the time scale that it was gonna happen at, this business was gonna do more than one to 25. Yeah. But where they were rational was, hey, like investors are not are gonna balk at that. That's never been done. Yeah. Um, and so you have to present something more reasonable. And there's policy risk. Yes, there's policy risk. and But you, you note that, you don't apply a discount factor to your a revenue run rate. What you say is, hey, if this happens, this is what's going to happen. If it doesn't happen, here's the alternative, which is essentially zero. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. mean not zero revenue, it, The but EV yeah. is not one half. Of- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I think Joe still has to eat. I think he said he was going to eat the deck. Or yeah, that's right. Or we're we're
1: going to print it out at some point and <laughs> he's going he's to eat it. But, and, what, what, and so what we did was we actually reduced it to one to 11 million in ARR and then scale kind of uh, The plan for the
0: year. Yes. And then the corresponding amount of money that you wanted to raise towards that plan. Yeah, yeah. And, and so so we kind of just... Uh, you must have thought you were know, living in the fucking upside down right now. Like, guys, are you kidding me? We have it.
2: Oh, we a- ha- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so sure. yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. is going to happen. Like, we have the
0: tiger by the tail.
1: Yeah, it was so strange feeling like you were the only person that knew the secret. And the secret f- seemed obvious. Now, you know, I'm, I'm definitely optimistic and I have, I have an information advantage, right? Uh, but still, it, it surprised me. And in fact, I think when I, when I meet people who, who pass on R B, they recognize that there was a price of this. There should have been much more demand for that. People just have to be able to price that risk. But it shouldn't be, oh, there's policy risk. I'm out. It was worth noting, too, Trump had just gotten elected. We would talk to truck drivers and trucking companies. They're like, Trump's in now. All the regulations going away. Like, there's no way this is happening. And so, so it, right. wasn't, it wasn't was Those were
2: literally the sales calls. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. Must have been even worse because you know a bunch of people in venture. Like, one of your competitive advantages as a CEO is knowing a bunch of the people in venture capital.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and that actually- like they're uh, friends. Huge. Hugely important. It actually was a real advantage at the seed. Essentially, I, you know, I had Joe Kraus was like, "Hey, when you when you go, when you're ready to leave, yeah. start a company, yeah. we're yeah. we on a board together." He's They're like, "I got you," which I, you know I'm so grateful for. And Ilya it was, you know, deep trust and, and, and relationship. But w- once you get past B, that none of that stuff matters. It's all about do you have the numbers mm-hmm. and is the market large and can you continue to scale yourself and your team? Yeah, yeah. The the, the game really does change once you're past that. Like kind of exploratory phase of
0: Sydney. And you don't have to answer this, but in retrospect, do you wish you pounded the table harder? Like, do you wish that you approached this differently?
2: You know, I could have sort of threatened to quit, you know, like the, this sort of like, hey, you don't do this? I'm out kind of, you know, sort of joking a little bit here, but there are probably more extreme things I could have tried to do. But I think there was an element of this has to come to some fruition. Like we have to see that this is real and look, you operate in a partnership and could I have done more to convince my partners? Maybe. Yeah. But I think frankly, a lot of it just like all the doubt frankly went away when the revenue ramp happened.
1: Right. Well, there was actually another reason to reflecting back on this. We had SVB, actually was critical in, in the development of the company. They gave us an $8 million term loan for essentially against hardware purchases yeah. uh, at, at when we did the A. And we drew on that. We drew effectively the full amount. Wow. And, and it actually let us you know, continue to, to operate. Uh, and if we hadn't had that, the company wouldn't be uh, what it is today. And so, so that, that was a factor in the consideration. Like It's hard to be behind you know, $8 million of term debt for a company that has no revenue. So, so there, there's, it was very reasonable that that investment didn't come through. But importantly, when I actually reflect back what would I would have done differently, like if, if I could have, and maybe this is like a second time entrepreneur opportunity, but like if I could have raised more money and built that exceptional hardware and software engineering team earlier, instead of kind of going through multiple cycles of trial and error. The market would be ours Um, and and the market will be ours in in the fullness of time, to be clear. Um, But it could have been even faster. The TAM is just giant and it's so clear that uh, the market needs what we have.
0: Yeah. And I think let's call a spade a spade. You had just come back from Dropbox, right? To Excel, right? Index. Index, sorry. Index. And the first deal that you do basically is this one. It's not like you've been the dude in venture for 30 years. You really stick your neck out on the line.
2: I think you stick your neck out in line with, in every deal you do with with your partners, if you have a healthy partnership, yeah, you have to justify it all, right? It's the same dollars competing for all the same opportunities. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, over to you. I'm not going to let you off the hook. Toughest feedback that Ilya has ever given you? No, I've given Ilya, I think. That you've given Ilya? Sorry, yes.
1: You know, I will say when he left the board and moved from Index to KP, I was super bummed and, and I, I let him know it. When you are in venture and you operate a company, you realize there's there's a lot of risk in being kind of this inherited asset. You right? don't want to lose it from the team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and like this was at the time when I needed him most intensely. He had the most context. He knew me best. He knew what, what the gaps of the, of the business. And, and it's not like he disappeared. Obviously, we like we, you know, we're friends and we, we we're, we're constantly trading notes, but you, you simply can't engage at that same level. Uh, with yeah. the same resolution when you're not on the board, and so I was super bummed. But but I actually reflecting back on it, I, I totally understand. I mean, you know, this idea of Ilya he pursues growth, and that move for him was unquestionably the right move. Uh, yeah. And and so how could my self interest outweigh
0: kind of hit what's best for him? It's, that it, had to weigh on to you, bounce. though. Like that, not just with Shoei, but like probably yeah, all the boards. I you mean, sit leaving
2: on. leaving boards is incredibly hard, right? Yeah. Because you're, these are the commitments you really make. Um, These are ultimately the relationships that endure, right? Deep relationships that you form with founders and people put a lot of trust in you as a board member, really first true board member in a company. And you do have the most context you do. You are the champion internally, right? And you can have somebody come in and and backfill. And I think Mark's, Mark's fantastic at Index, but you don't have the same feel. I mean, I remember when you had your office next to the bar on Mission Street and it was like three or four of you and, and there's a bunch of folks sleeping on the floor, floor, floor and like, walk up. yeah, there was yeah. like, a, you know, you, just, you don't have that memory, right? And you don't have the context of where the company came from and, and where, where it is. So I think it's the di- most difficult thing when you change uh, firms and venture, yeah. is, is leaving those relationships. But the great thing is you can restart them.
0: Yeah, good place to end it. I've already kept you guys over, so I appreciate you doing this, super fun. I end all these the same way. Are you hiring? Why don't we start there? If you're hiring for any key strategic roles, like are there any, is there anything that you want to shout out? Yeah, yeah. We, we're definitely
1: hiring and there's a few specific priorities. We're hiring a new head of AI, our, our head of ML and AI actually left to start a company, which uh, I'm really excited for him about. But uh, yeah, so, so, so we're looking for someone to kind of lead our AI team, an uh, area of, of significant importance, both w- with our driver safety product, but now we're starting to build new computer vision products for, for new applications. And then also on the embedded software side, hardware engineering side, we're scaling up that team. We're again, solving new problems in new spaces, going beyond the vehicle, going into into physical spaces. Uh, And so uh, hardware leadership is really, we have a great SVP hardware, but kind of rounding out that team and continue to scale it. Uh, And then we're we're going big on the enterprise sales side. So we started in SMB and commercial mid-market. Now we're really going after the the, the Fortune 500 and the largest uh, Mm -hmm. businesses and uh, looking to scale up that, that enterprise sales team in a major way. Last
0: one. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? What comes to mind? I think there's a, a element of relentlessness. You, you
1: have to just continuously persist, You know, get up after failure, but it has to be combined with like reflection. Got to learn from those mistakes and come back better. So, relentlessness
0: and reflection. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank, thank you. Yeah. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.